Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll read together the first, four, the first six verses of chapter 4. And to en- engage our throats a little bit more, let's, let's speak it together. So that is, to, it, we always get goofed up on read with me. You are actually speaking, all right? We're reading together. The first six verses of chapter 4 of Ephesians. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the Spirit of which we have just read would illumine our eyes and open our hearts to receive wonderful things from your law, that we would behold our new identity in Christ, that we would understand more of this grand calling to which we have been called, and that we would joyfully, in faith, move forward in obedience this morning as a result of spending this time in your Scriptures. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. Well, imagine heading downtown Minneapolis to Orchestra Hall to attend a concert by the Minnesota Orchestra, in which a brilliant composer has been commissioned to write a piece that is going to be debuted that night for the first time ever. And he has even agreed to be the guest conductor for the evening. So in the program notes, you read how the orchestra has been studying the score individually and rehearsing it together for months now, and how excited each, each orchestra member is to perform the world premiere of this incredible new work. Now you and everyone else, you're excited. And as soon as the conductor lifts his baton and the first note is sounded, you know something is horribly wrong. You know, and you're no music official critic here, but something is horribly off. You listen a little bit more and you start to realize what's going on. The first violinist has decided she is going to fiddle as fast as she possibly can to show off her technique, how she's been working on her scales and her speed, and she just wants everyone to know, regardless of the notes on the page. The trumpet player puts down his normal trumpet, pulls out his piccolo trumpet, and begins to screech the loudest notes and the highest notes he possibly can reach and to hold them out for as long as he can to show off his incredible breath support. The timpani player thinks they've just been given a green light to hit the drums as hard and as loud as they possibly can. The trombone section, of course, is self-controlled and doing exactly what they're, <laughs> exactly, exactly what they're supposed to do. But the French horn section... They have decided to play their favorite Disney tunes, whichever one they want. And even though the conductor is mortified, perhaps he looks like this individual here, 
he is stopped conducting only to glare at each orchestra member. The chaos continues. He finally storms off the stage, infuriated at such an embarrassing experience. Now, how did you, the listener, know that something was wrong? And why did the conductor have a problem with what he heard? I mean, presumably everyone was simply playing whatever made them happy in that particular moment. They did what was right in their own eyes and what was right according to their own judgment in that particular moment. They played the notes they wanted to play instead of being constrained by the music that that mean guy had had put on their page. This is the essence of freedom, right? Shouldn't we expect this to produce the greatest product in the end? Well, professional orchestra members ought to act like professional orchestra members. Their job is to convey the beauty and the magnificence of the composer's work as a unified and cohesive group of highly skilled musicians who play every nuance of the music in concert with one another. In this case, the failure to act in accord with their true identity, professional, elite musicians, had a devastating effect. And the failure to act in concert with their fellow musicians was equally devastating. Well, for the Apostle Paul, his chief concern in the second half of the letter to the Ephesians is for them to live in accord with their new and true identity in Christ. Is that they would be who they now are in Christ. Furthermore, our foremost expression Paul's aimed after is that we belong to the household of God and that we should observe this in our relationships with one another. The main idea that we see in these verses here this morning is that as the called people of God, Christians must live selfless, loving lives that promote spirit-given, truth-given, truth-driven unity within the body of Christ. As the called people of God, Christians must live selfless, loving lives that promote spirit-given and truth-driven unity within the body of Christ. Well, we see in... I'll leave that up a little longer. We see in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, it has been jam-packed with this mind-stretching theological realities aimed at grounding us in an eliciting worship toward the staggering splendor of the gospel. And we have learned that God's chosen, beloved, called out, adopted, forgiven, redeemed, unified, spirit-filled children who await an eternal inheritance and can rightly claim a heavenly citizenship, these Christians are fundamentally new creations. We are God's workmanship redeemed and refashioned by God Himself, rebuilt with new desires and new affections for God's glory, for Christ's honor, and a selfless love for the household of God. Well, as Paul begins chapter 4, he's intent on helping us see now the concrete street-level 
application and implications of this new life that we have in Christ. Be who you now are in Christ. Live in concert with this new identity in Jesus. Think and act and desire in ways that accord with being a redeemed child of God. This is Paul's emphasis as we turn a corner now at the hinge point in the book that is filled now with imperatives for how to go about living this Christian life. So as we analyze the first six verses of chapter 4, we see the following outline unfold for us. The call here, the primary governing imperative in these verses, to walk worthy of your calling. Well, how? Well, what does this look like? Paul says it is expressed in deferential love in verse 2. It's eager to maintain unity, verse 3. And it's anchored in eternal truth in verses 4 through 6. So first, we consider this call to walk worthy or to live worthy of our calling. In verse 1, Paul begins this street-level gospel for real life imperatives with an outstretched chest, boasting of his apostleship and how significant his credentials are as a scholar of the Scriptures, right? No, not at all. How does he state and describe himself? It is a prisoner for the Lord. Prisoners don't often give commands right? They usually receive them. And yet this prisoner for the Lord is someone who knows that their present circumstances, remember Paul is under house arrest here in Rome, does not negate the gospel's power to go forth and to change lives. So this prisoner for the Lord begins to make his appeal in verse 1 with what will serve as this overriding imperative governing the verses that follow. Paul writes, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So Paul exhorts, he implores, he urges, some translations say begs the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. So Paul really favors this uh, this metaphor of walking as a way of comprehensively describing the manner in which one lives his or her Christian life. He uses it in other epistles, but in Ephesians alone, we read of these instances. We see in in verse 1, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. A little later, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Walk in love. Walk as children of light. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but is wise. So walking would have been a pretty well understood Jewish metaphor that is used frequently among writers of the Old Testament and speaking to the comprehensive life orientation of both heart and action. In Deuteronomy 10.12 we read, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. But what is meant in Ephesians 4 precisely by walk worthy of your calling? Well, walking worthy is not making ourselves worthy of the calling we've received of God. 
it cannot be misconstrued as a self-salvation to God in which our, our development of moral virtues makes us worthy of God's grace. This would be just an utter and complete swing and a miss on what the text means. It means our lives should match the new identity that we've been given by God in the gospel. We can probably think of one example after another of, of people who have been removed from public office, whatever that office might be, because they dishonored, they dishonored the office with poor, selfish choices. Their lives were found to be unworthy of holding the office to which they were appointed. Our lives are called to be a match to this high calling this new identity that we have received in Christ. Paul uses this exact phrase in several other places. We see in Philippians 1, 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So here the call is to live worthy so that in unity there might be a defense for the faith of the gospel. We see in Colossians 1, as we just read this morning, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The call here is to live worthy that results in a fruit-filled life. In 1 Thessalonians 2, we read, We charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Here the call is to live worthy since God has called us to the hope of eternal life. But what is this office, so to speak, that Christians have been called to? What is this calling? Well, first, there's a way that calling is used in Uh, Some Christian, even secular contexts, where we refer to it as kind of a unique pathway of life uh, in which a person pursues. It's, It's their calling. So, I sensed my calling was to go work in an orphanage in Africa, or I sensed my call to make a difference for the Lord in the workplace. Or we hear it, I sensed a calling to go into ministry, or what have you. All these ways of describing calling are personalized impressions, oftentimes spirit-led impressions, of how someone believes they should glorify God with their life. But this is not how Paul's using calling here. Paul is intentionally redundant in this verse, in this opening sentence, as he encourages this worthy walk based on the calling to which you have been called, he says. So to emphasize this call even more, he repeats the word two more times in verse 4. A total of four times he's emphasized this in these six verses. This call is God's effectual call in which he summons his chosen elected children to behold the mystery of the gospel and through repentance and faith to receive Christ's atoning sacrifice and all the spiritual blessings that flow to them from that. Now, as the most foundational reality and really the most consequential matter that we'll discuss this morning, I urge you to consider this call. Every teen, every child, every young adult, older adult, are you trusting in the atoning sacrifice of Christ? Has the Spirit 
been working on your heart in the way that only the Spirit of God can to draw you with those cords of love to open your eyes to see what is this glorious call that God has upon all His elected children. Do you see the holiness of an all-glorious God? Do you see the greatness of your sin against Him? Do you confess your need for His forgiveness and His grace? And then do you believe that such saving grace has been provided for you only through Jesus? And then, can you only, through this repentance and faith, know the joys of a transformed life, a new identity, a new family, and life eternal? Christ Our God will never, ever turn away a sinner who runs to Him in faith. He never has and He never will. We understand now what it it means to walk worthy of our calling, but but how does this happen? What does it look like? Can you be more specific, Paul? Well, sure, he is. First, we see a worthy walk is expressed in deferential love. In verse 2, living worthy of our calling looks like humility, looks like gentleness, looks like patience. It looks like bearing with one another in love, long-suffering grace that puts up with, quite literally, fellow Christian brothers and sisters in love. Jim Collins, in his best-selling book, Good to Great, writes about what separates good companies from becoming great companies. He says two qualities seem to arise in leaders of truly great companies. The first is that incredible drive to succeed, but the other may surprise you, a self-effacing modesty. These great leaders consistently point to the contribution of others and generally dislike attention being drawn to themselves. They don't want to become larger-than-life heroes. They are usually ordinary people quietly producing extraordinary results. We think of this idea of humility. How interesting to note that even success in a business world context seems to circle back to this common denominator of humility and selflessness among even great leaders. How easy, how natural, how almost effortless it is for us to swell with inflated views of ourselves, our opinions, our perspectives on issues, our strategies for fixing things, our solutions to life's problems, our own methods. We compare and compete with one another in ways that oftentimes tear down only oftentimes only in our hearts, but if left unchecked, oftentimes in what we say and how we treat one another. Humility, on the contrary, garners God's attention. Isaiah 66, 2 reads, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite of heart and trembles at my word. Humility opens up the pipelines of God's grace. As the book of James tells us, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. One writer has defined humility as honestly 
assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So is there anything more refreshing and more encouraging than genuine humility at work in the life of a fellow believer in a church? You probably don't know that it's humility you're interacting with. Usually what you will know is that there's a great interest in you by that person. There's a great selflessness being poured out. But it's one of the most fragrant, grace-giving things. And on the flip side, is there anything more repulsive than self-centered, self-promoting interests by certain members within a church? It's true. Paul makes clear that living a life worthy of our calling is incompatible with self-centered, self-promoting pride. Gentleness is the next description that is closely related to humility. It is oftentimes rendered meekness, but shouldn't be understood in the modern usage as someone who lacks courage or someone who is sort of easily imposed upon, as is oftentimes the the common usage of the word. David Mathis writes in an article on this matter of gentleness. He says, gentleness today may be the single most misunderstood spirit-produced virtue. Two millennia later, gentleness is often used as a positive spin on weakness. But gentleness in the Bible is emphatically not a lack of strength, but the godly exercise of power. Gentleness does not signal a lack of ability, but the added ability to steward one's strength so that it serves good, life-giving ends rather than bad, life-taking ends. Proverbs tells us that a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Gentleness is modeled in Christ who says, Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. The Apostle Paul defends his own ministry to the Corinthians by highlighting his own gentleness and yet his boldness when he is away from them. Paul tells Timothy that a qualification for a pastor should include the characteristic of not violent, but gentle. Peter instructs Christian women to avoid needless showcasing of external beauty, but rather to adorn themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit. Self-controlled strength used for the benefit and upbuilding of others is how Christians walk worthy of their call. Patience. The early church father and famous preacher John Chrysostom wrote that patience originally meant having a wide and big soul. Patience is that largeness of soul that allows the Christian to endure annoyances and frustrations over a long period of time. This is the 70 times 7 principle. Patience is the opposite of anger, which keeps a close accounting of the sins of others, and whether immediately or eventually down the road, fury erupts. There is nothing quite so godlike as exercising patience toward the sins, the frustrations, and the misgivings of others. For God is slow to anger and long-suffering towards sinners like us. This wideness of soul is to mark a life worthy of our calling. 
bearing with one another in love. Putting up with others is part and parcel to life in a fallen world, especially within the community of faith. Now, I grew up in the South, where there's a Baptist church on every corner. Wonderful, right? Well, not always. But one of the not-so-wonderful byproducts is the cultural tendency to church hop, right? To move from a church, uh, from church to church whenever a person's subjective annoyance threshold gets crossed, right? And then instead of having the opportunity to remain and to display obedience to a verse like this, many opt to just try a different church where they pray that they won't have the issues that they had in their last dozen churches, Right? Well, we are not immune to such tendencies ourselves. And notice it is love that supports the bearing with one another. This is love first experienced in Christ through the gospel and now extended outward towards fellow Christians. Do you realize the benefit to your spiritual growth and your ability to walk worthy of the gospel when you remain under the pressures of relational friction with your brothers and sisters in Christ? How do you respond? That's what God is after. Your sanctification and Christ-likeness in these tough and tense moments with each other. Our walking worthy of our call is expressed in deferential love to each other, but is also eager to maintain unity. Christians demonstrate a life transformed by the gospel when, as verse 3 reads, they show an eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, what is clear when we read the description here is that believers are not called to create this unity within the family of faith. That work has already been done. And by whom, we ask? God, through His Spirit. Hidden for ages, revealed through the apostles and prophets by revelation through Paul is the mystery that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The construction of the church, along with the Spirit's indwelling presence to unify Jew and Gentile into a single unified family, is the work of God alone. He has done the unity-building work. Our role, as outlined in verse 3, is to maintain such unity in the bond of peace. But this maintaining work is no small task. It requires eagerness, an eagerness among Christians who are ready to, as the NIV translates it, make every effort. Paul often uses the same term, an eagerness, as he describes his effort to journey to a particular church or to visit them. And travel in the ancient world was challenging. It was hard. It took a make-every-effort sort of commitment just to get there. And this is his idea, that there would be labor, great amounts of labor involved. But it's not impossible because of the bond of peace that has been set in place through Christ's blood. As Paul says in chapter 2, He Himself, meaning Christ, is our peace. Peace. 
and has made us both one. We live in a world obsessed with unity. We see the ubiquitous coexist bumper stickers as we drive about. We, we hear how one side of the political aisle cannot unite on any issue to accomplish anything of value. We, we see an activist mentality in a rising generation pining after unity of thought like never before. Just take last year's Super Bowl commercials, for example. What used to be funny frogs when I was a kid are now every single one promoting some sort of positive humanitarian effort as an offshoot of their company's commitment. This unity, however, is a phantom unity because it lacks a true substance and foundation. And Paul makes no hesitation in pointing out that the substance and the foundation of Christian unity is verses 4 through 6. So living worthy of our calling is expressed in deferential love It's eager to maintain Christian unity. And lastly, it's anchored in eternal truth. We read, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul gives what may be a doctrinal creed that he formulated for use in the churches he ministered to. Uh, It may simply be just a unique display of doctrinal formulation just for the Ephesians specific to this letter. Perhaps he's building on some kind of earlier Christian confession. We don't know. But what we do know is that it is a reminder of a theology that binds everyone and everything together. You can see a, a, a threefold grouping of threes here. A body, spirit, hope. One Lord, faith, baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Each member of the Godhead is highlighted, one per triad. And the, one, the word one is repeated seven times in these three verses, highlighting the undeniable theme of unity. Because God's church is built on one true theological foundation. So working within these groupings, we see one body. This is the people of God scattered across the globe and divided on certain issues that naturally result in various denominations or subgroups. But Christians should always recognize that we are nevertheless one united body of Christ. There is one spirit, just as our physical bodies have one spirit. So God's body, the church, has one spirit, regenerating, empowering, strengthening, assuring, and guiding believers toward one hope. That is, every Christian knows they were formerly an alien to God's promises, having no hope and without God in this world, but not anymore. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness we sing. This is eternity with God in resurrection glory. There is one hope. There is one Lord. This is a reference to the Lord Jesus. And as Peter says in his sermon in Acts 4, he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's one Lord. 
There is one faith. As the book of Jude makes clear, we have a common salvation. That is one faith once for all delivered to the saints as an exclusive singular body of doctrine for which we are called to defend. There is one baptism. While the mode and the timing of baptism is highly debated among the one body of Christ, it is uniformly believed that baptism identifies a person as having entered membership into the body of Christ. And following the examples of Scripture, we believe baptism is the outward display of a sinner's personal confession that there is one faith, one hope, one Lord. This external symbol demonstrates the spiritual reality that Paul writes about to the Corinthians, for there is one Spirit in who, who were all baptized into one body. Our one baptism is a sign of our unity with God and with one another. And finally, there is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Overall, the Father is sovereignly in authority over all things. Through all, the Father is powerfully in control of all aspects of His world. And in all, the Father is present in and among His creation. And Paul reminds us that everything we hold dear as Christians, we hold dear alongside every other Christian who calls upon the name of the Lord in every place on the earth. This is theological oneness in Christ. It is unity that is grounded on truth. Well, Paul is reaching concrete, street-level practicality for us. Let's consider for a moment how we take these verses and provide a direct import into our lives from what he has just laid forth for us. First, I encourage us to remember our calling. Remember your calling. Remember the illustration of the professional orchestra members who acted as if they were a junior high band playing a prank on a substitute teacher during band class. They failed to dignify the position and the office, the honored seat as professional elite world-class musicians. Their actions were out of step with who they actually are. Your position, brother and sister in Christ, your position, your identity is a chosen, redeemed, blood-bought son or daughter of God, blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing, an inheritor of the promised Holy Spirit that indwells you and every other believer, that you are a part of growing into a holy temple in the Lord. This is reality. It may not feel like reality today, but in faith, this is true of who we now are in Christ. Do anything and everything to hold that reality before your heart as often as you are able. So walking worthy in every facet of life comes as the worshipful response to God's fathomless grace. Never get busy get into the street-level implications of living the gospel, bypassing, remembering your calling. Secondly, love through family friction. This passage really helps 
set accurate expectations for fellow church members, doesn't it? Just tell yourself right now, here it comes. People are going to hurt me. Not physically, but relationally. I hope not physically. Relationally, people, even fellow church members, are going to hurt you. And you know what? If you have kids in the church too, people are going to say and do things that, that kind of hurt and frustrate and sadden and disappoint your kids, all of us. Church members will disappoint me. They will make me feel forgotten when I want to feel loved. They may make me feel belittled when I want to be honored, and so on and so forth. But as you're just telling yourself that, calibrating your expectations, also tell yourself, I have no idea how many times God has given grace to other people, in particular moments, to show me patience, gentleness, grace, a long-suffering spirit. How many times did I deserve to be pummeled with a, with a jab or a comeback? But God gave grace to my brother and sister to show love towards me, right? That really kind of settles the score, doesn't it? Makes us realize that while we're aiming at giving grace, we are presently, in ways we'll never know, receiving grace God is giving to others to show me that same kind of love. Husbands, this is just as applicable in your marriage, in your leadership of your wife, in the leadership of your kids at home. Unmarried friends, this is just as applicable in your friendships in this church, which can easily tend perhaps towards cliques if we only gravitate towards the people that are, take little to no effort to love. I never have to bear with certain people, so I just kind of group together with the people that I most like. Children, this is likely every day for you as you interact with siblings who may drive you crazy hour on end. Learn that God is maybe helping your brothers and sisters to show you the very kindness that God is calling you to show towards them. Trust that this is exactly how God expects life to look this side of heaven. He knows there's going to be friction but that because of the gospel, we are able to love with a selfless, deferential love given to us by Christ that maintains the unity of His Spirit in the bond of peace. Thirdly, take responsibility for church unity. God has given it through His Spirit. He's called us to keep it, to guard it, to make every effort to maintain this gift that the Spirit has given. Tearing things down takes virtually no training, no skill, no coaching in life as a whole, ever. But tending to one another's hearts, gardening, cultivating spiritual graces among us that lead toward mutual upbuilding, this is exhausting. This is challenging. This is laborious, but filled with great rewards. And it is how we walk worthy of our call and maintain spirit-given unity. And lastly, treasure the unity we have in the truth. Christianity is simultaneously the most exclusive religion that demands that there is one Lord, one faith, one spirit, one God, and yet the most inclusive as it does not offer eternal hope to one 
people group or one gender or one class of people or one strata of society. It welcomes Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. Christ is all and in all for those who come to him in faith and repentance. Lest we become a little too infatuated with ourselves, staring at our own accomplishments as a church and what have you, let's remember everything we treasure of eternal worth is shared with all who call upon the name of the Lord. We exist for the praise of His glorious grace, the refrain that Paul repeats over and again in chapter 1. And such tribute to our King is being given in all places in the earth. So as the called people of God, may God help us to live as Christians, selfless, loving lives that promote spirit-given, truth-driven unity within the body of Christ. Let's pray. Our God, this is our simple cry that in light of the expansive grace that you have given to us, that we would respond to that grace in obedience with just a pure top to bottom, you write the script. I don't come with demands hoping for compromise. I am yours, as Paul writes, a prisoner for the Lord, completely given over to the Lord. I pray that would be the disposition of our hearts. And Lord, as we, we look at what it means to walk worthy, we would individually search our hearts to know what we can do to maintain the spirit the unity of the Spirit, and the bond of peace. This is our call. We pray, even as Paul will elaborate several verses later, that this is to be done through speaking the truth in love towards one another. I pray that would be characteristic of our communication with each other. And I pray in all things that Christ, the head of the church, would be glorified. We exist for you. We trust that you are in all, through all, and over all. It is for your glory <clears throat> we pray these things now. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, I, I can't help but think that if we truly are one 